First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Annalisa for the invitation. Very, very cool. And thanks for just having me. Um, so it's kind of funny, like when I, I know this is a really pressing topic for people. Um, like it's come up a lot just in terms of, of conversation, just informally, like in, in the parish office and, and just like thinking about um, couples and, and people striving to live the vocation of marriage. But it's, it's never really been talked about as far as I can tell. Maybe I just don't get out very much, but um, it's just one of those things. And so um, for myself, I got to admit, it's the first time I've really been intentional about trying to think about this topic and, and what it means and stuff. And the first thing that kind of came to mind, this might kind of sound off topic somewhat, and it kind of is in a certain sense. Um, I remember when I was in high school and I was like a uh, student council president and would have all these different functions. And like the recurring thing was um, school dances, you know? And so that was kind of our bread and butter, like sort of like uh, bake sales and garage sales for parishes, you know? <laughs> and, so, um, and I remember like, like at a certain point, I forget who it was, um, but it might've been a teacher or just some guest speaker that was brought in. But basically the speaker was saying, um, school dances are not fun. School dances are not fun. Like the people kind of make them fun, you know? And it's funny how like you can hear something when you're, when you're younger and like um, the full significance of the thing doesn't really strike you until kind of later on. But it's one of those things that's, uh, I always remember that being said in that particular context. And that memory kind of came up in preparation for this talk. Um, because I was thinking about how, for example, um, well, not just in parish settings, but just the social settings in general, right? You can have occasions where, okay, we go out for coffee, we'll go out for dinner, or we can have a parish function where, you know, people from the parish gather. But in a certain sense, it's kind of like school dance, right? And so there can be opportunities for people to gather, but then it's like, it's what you kind of bring to it. Um, Cardinal Collins, um, he, he said something kind of similar with regards to the priests. And so, you know, we don't, hang on a lot, but like one time we went out for like lunch or dinner and he was talking about that good leaders, good shepherds course that um, basically all the priests in the Archdiocese of Toronto are recommended to take. And one of the things he said to me was that like one of the reasons why he wants um, the priests to take it, like besides, you know, bringing principles of organizational behavior to, to parishes, it was kind of um, to try to try to give priests in the diocese um, uh, sort of different avenues for having conversations with each other and building relationships with each other that didn't devolve into like gossip or, or jokes, you know? So he's like, yeah, like basically when he sees a lot of priests getting together, like a lot of times it, it descends into that or it's reduced simply to like gossip and or sort of a jokey culture. And he wanted people to, people to be able to talk about something um, a little more substantive and, and rich and, you know, mutually enriching, right? So there's kind of like that particular principle, you know? So I remember being at a, um, a dinner party with different couples and kind of raising this issue just in general. But, you know, I, I felt in retrospect, it was, it was too, it was too novel an idea. Um, and I felt that because everyone was starting leaving the table when I started talking about it. So luckily, luckily you're trapped here on Zoom. So we're going to talk about it here. Um, so like, I guess, I don't know, like just to kind of put a little more focus on the thing. There's a guy named uh, Brett Powell. I think he did the, uh, the men's group retreat for the chaplaincy students for Ryerson a couple of years ago, if not last year. But anyways, uh, he works for the Archdiocese of Vancouver. And basically, you know, he talks about like, one time he was talking about like programs and structures and, and stuff like that. And he goes, you know, those things are, are important and those things are necessary, but like, they're not like the most important thing. So he gave this really great analogy. He's like, um, imagine like the things in your life and like you're juggling them, like they're kind of in the air. 
Um, but only certain things are made out of glass, you know? So in terms of like my priority, like, okay, like I have to keep all these things in the air. Like it's important that I juggle these things, but certain things I must not drop, you know? And so different ways you can kind of take that. But one thing he was focusing on was like, okay, quite apart from the programs and, and the structures and what the, uh, whatnot, um, what's important is, is the presence you bring to bear, you know? So when I'm in relationship with other people, whether or not it's, um, it's a big group or a small group, like even on a one-on-one context, like what's the presence that I bring to bear in this particular relationship? So like, do I convey this sense of, of trust? Do I convey the sense of security? Um, do I convey the sense of, where people can be, can be vulnerable in my presence and still feel safe? Do they convey the sense of like authentic love, right? And of course, the whole point is that like, if you don't, if you don't have that, it's not necessarily that the social interaction will be awkward, but it can descend into like, you know, just small talk, jokey culture, gossipy culture, right? Whereas the potential is actually like so great in those particular situations, right? So with that in mind, um, what I want to do today might be a little counterintuitive. Like I know the topic is accompanying uh, other couples and you might think like, I I've just forgotten the topic, right? But this, this is actually relevant because the idea that you find a lot in philosophy, for example, is... Um, the primacy of being as opposed to doing, right? So once I know um, who I am and who I'm called to be, the doing kind of takes care of itself, you know? So what we're going to do, we're going to focus on certain key aspects of like Christian identity as pertains to this topic of accompanying um, other couples. So, so this might sound kind of rudimentary, but hopefully it's, hopefully it's not. So first of all, like this idea of like being a spouse, right? So obviously like Christ's presence at the wedding of Cana elevated um, you know, sacrament of marriage to, to a sacrament, right? So there's that, right? But it kind of begs the question, like, what does that mean in terms of like the sacramental character of marriage? So, you know, we know Catechism 101, right? So a sacrament is a visible sign instituted by Christ to convey grace. But on a base level, it's like a visible thing that you can kind of see and touch in a certain sense, which points to an invisible reality. Now, when it comes to like um, a lot of the sacraments, especially the ones that we encounter on a more regular basis, like baptism, Eucharist, whatever, it's easier to kind of make that connection. So like you look at like baptism and, you know, the water and stuff like, oh, okay, obviously it's like, you know, cleansing and rebirth and, and it's like being in particular reborn into a, like a, a child of God, right? So um, the image of, of like drowning, like dying to the old sinful self and being reborn as a child of God, it's, it's pretty obvious based on symbolism. Or you think about the Eucharist, right? So invisible sign pointing to an invisible reality, pointing to the invisible reality of Christ, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, right? Now, again, with marriage, okay, so visible sign pointing to an invisible reality, like what's the invisible reality being pointed to? And it's the spousal love between Christ and his church. The spousal love between Christ and his church. So obviously, it's something we need to unpack even more, right? So one of the best ways to unpack it is to focus on um, Paul's letters to the Ephesians chapter five, right? And you might not know it like based on chapter verse, but you'll know when you hear the words, right? So wives be submissive to your husbands. So like, oh, I remember. <laughs> so now um, obviously translation issues are, are really kind of important, right? So the key word there, um, there's actually a lot of keywords, but just for uh, sake of economy, um, the key word there is like the word which is rendered there is, is submit, right? So People hear that and like they get their backs up and whatever. So even when this reading appears in the Sunday lectionary, there's the option to kind of skip that part. So you can read the first part of Ephesians 5, but like skip it in case like the preacher doesn't want to deal with it. Right? But it actually is a really important and foundational text, right? So um, basically when you cross-reference to different parts in the Bible, especially the gospel, 
when you see the, the original word in the Greek, which again is rendered here as cement, you find it funny enough in terms of describing Jesus in relationship to his father, right? Um, and so even just to think about conception on a high level, right? If, if that's the case, if, if the word which is unfortunately rendered here as cement in the original Greek refers to the relationship um, between Christ and his father or how Christ relates to his father, Clearly, obviously, it, it shouldn't, it, it must not have this, this notion of like, you know, unreasonable oppression or like domination and like that, because, you know, Christ is one in being with the Father, right? So again, just to kind of make things short, the idea is that, um, okay, so wives be submissive to your husbands. The, the idea is, okay, like wives as persons equal in dignity to your husbands, the invitation and not the command is to entrust yourself to your husband's loving care, right? So there's that. Now, the next, the next line is, um, is a commandment, right? So the invitation is given to the wife. The commandment is given to the husband. And the commandment is, uh, husbands, you must love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? So you think it through, like, how did Christ love the church? Died for the church, right? So the commandment is directed to the husbands. Like, the commandment from God the Father is, like, you must live out the stance of sacrificial love. You must take the initiative to die to yourself out of love for your wife. And your wife, if she perceives that and trusts that, she will entrust her heart to your loving care, right? And, and that's, that's the image of, of marriage from the Christian perspective, right? So um, mutual trust, safe space, vulnerability, um, laying down one's life, you know, in, in, in relation to each other, right? So there's that. We'll get to the dueling in a moment, but I'm just kind of going on, on being stuff. So that's, that's the spousal thing. Second thing you want to consider is that okay, in terms of my Christian identity, I'm like okay, I'm called to be a spouse. Uh, I'm also called to be a disciple, right? So a disciple, um, obviously, it's it's different than being a student, right? So the goal of being a student is to know what the teacher knows. Discipleship, even before the arrival of like you know Christ, um, discipleship. The goal of discipleship is to become the rabbi. So it's not just a head thing; it's an entire being thing. So when Christ appears on the scene and, and we're called to discipleship in, the, in terms of the Christian context, we're called to be another Christ in this world. So, I, you know, that's, that's the goal there. But for our purposes, the thing I want to suggest to you is that, okay, if I'm called to be a disciple, then what that means is that I'm a fellow disciple along with the people in my midst. You know, so my friends, person down the street, you know, other couples, right? So we're fellow disciples and we're fellow sinners, right? And that and that's a really kind of important thing. Like um, you see this, for example, I think in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter twenty-one, right? So where it talks about how uh, you're not to call you're not to call each other, you know, call yourselves like father, right? You only have one father, and you only have one teacher. Th that's the idea. It's almost a variation of like kind of like know your place, right? And the idea is that um, okay, when I when I examine my my life of discipleship, um, am I aware of the fact that I am precisely that a, a fellow disciple, a fellow sinner with other people? journeying through this this time of pilgrimage right so um the example that comes to mind there's this christian philosopher named um dallas willard right and he says I'm paraphrasing but basically what he says is that god the father is is scouring the earth god the father is scouring the earth looking for people to whom we can convey his power or share of his power so god the father is scouring the earth looking for someone that people with whom he can share his power but he doesn't do it in a lot of cases because if he did it, if he gave a share of his power, even a limited share of his power to this person or that person, it would cause harm, enormous harm to them and to other people. 
So yeah, so again, God is like dying in a certain sense to share his power with other people, but he does it in a lot of cases because people would basically abuse the power. It would hurt them, it would hurt other people. So I'll give you an example. Think about like St. Peter, right? St. Peter at the Last Supper. Okay, so Lord, if any of all these losers deny you, I will never deny you. <laughs> um, not ready to receive the share of the Lord's power, you know? Um, because he's lording himself over the other guys, right? It's just a sense of, of condescension and arrogance and pride. Like he is not ready. But then what happens? Like after the resurrection, after the denial, you know, uh, three times, like by the charcoal fire type thing, and he's in a stance of like repentance and deep humility, and he's expecting the Lord to chew him out. And the Lord says, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? And basically says to him, that's good enough. You only love me this much as opposed to how you thought you loved me before. Um, that's the prerequisite to feed my lambs, feed my sheep, right? And the idea is that, okay, like now you're ready to receive a limited share of my power. And now you're ready to become a witness and a leader. And quite frankly, now you're ready to become Pope. And there's no way you would have become Pope um, in the aftermath of the Last Supper. But now in this stance, once you realize that, yeah, I'm a fellow disciple, I'm a fellow sinner, uh, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, that leads us to the third thing in terms of Christian identity, um, realizing that you're like a child of God, realizing that you're a child of God. And this is like, obviously, like foundational, right? So the idea is that, you know, I got to own the fact that I have intrinsic dignity, intrinsic value. And it's not just me, it's like everyone, you know, because everyone, they're, they're children of the Lord, right? And do I believe that? Like quite apart from what I say to other people, quite apart from what I do to interest my interactions with other people, do I believe that about myself? And do I believe that about other people? So again, just to quote um, uh, Brett Powell, right? So he in turn quotes uh, John Paul II. So John Paul II has this really great quote, and you've probably heard it before. Like, um, you are not the sum of your weaknesses and failures. You are the sum of your father's love for you and your real capacity to become an image of his only begotten son. So again, you're not, the, you're not the sum of your weaknesses and failures, or quite frankly, your successes, right? But you're the sum of your father's love for you and your real capacity to become an image of his only begotten son. And Brett Powell, he was being really honest, right? And he said, like, you know, for the longest time, what I heard when I heard that statement was, you are the sum of your weaknesses and failures. And maybe you do have a capacity to become another Christ in this world, but you're on your own and, and don't screw it up. Because the father's watching and he's like waiting to judge you and judge you harshly, right? Um, and obviously that, that kind of feeds into this performance orientation, right? Um, and so kind of a funny thing, right? Like even when you look at the culture of life, like again, John Paul II, right? What's at the root of the culture of death? An obsession with efficiency, right? So you, when you hear the notion of like the dignity of the human person, child of God and all that stuff, like it sounds good, but then what happens is in a subtle way, we believe in the lies fed to us by the culture. Like if, I, if I'm able to produce that which the world finds to be important, if I have a higher level of functionality or efficiency, especially when that functionality and efficiency is seen and valued, I, I buy into the lie that somehow I'm, I'm worth more. And I, I, I kind of like adopt that mentality when it comes to assessing other people as well. Whereas in contrast, um, I forget who, who said this, but you know, there is nothing you can do to have God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Like he just, he just loves you and he wills your good, right? So um, just to have that as a starting point. So I'll give you an example from the gospel. Um, the rich young man, right? So it's one of those stories, I don't know about you, but it, it felt like it came up like all the time 
like since July. Like, but anyways, rich young man, right? So he goes up to Christ and he says, okay, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life, right? And what he's thinking, I mean, you find out later on, like he's followed the commandments and done them since his youth, right? So he's not like indifferent to like ritual practice and the religious thing and whatever, right? So he, he's familiar with that. But there's this thing where he thinks, okay, um, what do I need to do to earn my entrance in the kingdom of heaven? So this is performance orientation, right? And he also believes that he is not the sum of his father's love for him, but he does believe that he is the sum of his you know, weaknesses and failures and, and quite frankly, his possessions, right? And so what happens at the end when the Lord basically tells him to sell out and come follow him and find his identity in the sum of his father's love for him, he can't do it, right? And so he thinks, okay, if I, if I give up this thing where um, I'm a functionary or I, I, base my, I judge myself on my efficiencies or I judge myself based on my possessions, if I let go of that way of looking at life and myself, um, I will become less, not more. Whereas actually it's the opposite, right? And, and that's what you see, right? So I think it was um, Pope Francis, he said, you know, because he couldn't make that leap, because it wasn't about possession, right? It was about attachment to these things. But anyways, more to the point, because he couldn't make that leap to realize that he's more than the sum of his possessions or functionalities or efficiencies, Pope Francis says he will forever be known as a man who used to be young and he used to be rich. And so even though he thinks, okay, if I, if I you know, I got to hold on to these things, my life becomes less. Actually, it's, it's the reverse, right? Okay. Now, in terms of like what this means for us, so we talked about identity in terms of like the spousal thing, um, child of God, uh, and discipleship, right? So whole thing, what do we do? What does this mean in terms of accompaniment, right? So first of all, this, this idea of, of being a spouse, right? So you can only give what you have received. Um, so that old maxim, right? So this might sound kind of cliche, right? But like um, when you become a parent, you don't stop being a husband or a wife, right? But sometimes you kind of forget that. Right? So um, back when I was, uh, before I became a lawyer, I, I did my um, uh, degree in English literature. I did a BA and focused on English literature. And I, I took these different electives just to fill in the gaps. And I, I love taking like um, family science courses, which were basically like sociology courses. And I remember um, one of my teachers did a whole um, thesis on like honeymoons. <laughs> and basically just to sum it up for us, he was saying like, you know, in the early going, um, honeymoons used to be kind of based on uh, functional exercises, you know, so back in the day, like the honeymoon, the standard for, for honeymoons was that the husband and wife would uh, go camping and like kind of learn like marital roles and transfer to the, to the home life type thing. Right. But then obviously that, that trans that transformed over time to like, you know, Vegas and like um, tropical islands and whatever. And then what would happen is that like, well, anyways, the point is that both of them have errors, right? So the idea of like the honeymoon being like, you know, this is where we practice being a functionary because that's what our marriage is going to be. It misses the, the romance and relationship element in a certain sense. But same thing with the whole like tropical island Las Vegas thing, right? Because what, what happens sometimes is people will be like, oh, like, um, you know, we're celebrating our, our marriage and our relationship in Vegas. But then we come home and, oh, my goodness, we got to be functionaries. <laughs> like, it, it's, it doesn't seem like a transferable thing. But the whole point is that you actually, you actually need both. Like you actually need both, right? And so the idea is that, like, do I invest the time to um, not just spend time with my spouse, but to celebrate us, to celebrate our, our relationship, you know? And to realize, like, like that's, that's not just an important thing. Like, God calls you to that. 
Um, and that's really, really important, right? Because again, you can only give what you've, what you've received. And so if you, it's kind of funny, because eh? because if you forget that, you know, we have, we have dignity and value as, as children of God. And like, I, I value for you because you're my husband and my wife, just because, right. If you forget that and you kind of like start moving excessively to the space of functionality, it'll affect the way that you relate to other couples. Right. Um, now in terms of like how you would relate to, to each other in terms of like the spouse relationship, something that's really important to remember is that intimacy basically is shared vulnerability. You know, so a lot of times the culture tells us intimacy is all about like sex and stuff, right? So like I remember when I was working in a law firm, there was a guy next to me and he was um, um, he was Jewish and he was talking about the marriage prep course in the Jewish tradition. And I had never heard about that. So I'm like, oh, like what, what kind of stuff did you do? And he said, well, for one exercise, it was like, show your um, then fiance, show your fiance that you love him or her without touching that person. And he's like, you know, Eric, I couldn't think of anything. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll pray for you. <laughs> so, like that's not good right if you can only think of intimacy in terms of the physical thing that is very limiting right whereas if you think of it in terms of shared vulnerability where um yeah again the ephesians 5 thing right i take a chance to like trust you and trust my heart to you right and and we're both kind of doing that and there's a safe space where we can have those difficult conversations but it doesn't feel threatening because i, I believe in your love for me like that's that's an amazing thing right okay so there's that um the thing with discipleship right um, that's actually kind of really interesting. The idea is that you want to take seriously your own spiritual journey. Again, a variation of you can only give what you've received, right? So um, the example that comes to mind, um, this came up during one of the weekday masses um, this week, I think. Basically, the story of the unforgiving servant, you know? And so, like, what does he owe his master? Like, 10,000 talents, right? And I, I looked it up actually the other day because I wanted to verify what it actually valued, what the valuation was. Basically, one talent is like, I believe, $1.4 million, right? And so like 10,000 talents, it's a lot, right? And, and the whole point is that it's not just like a lot. It's like, you can't pay this back, like at all. Like, even if you wanted to, like, you're not going to live that long, right? Whereas like, what does the other guy owe his fellow slave? He owes him like three months wages, right? So like, I think it's 100 denarii. Denarii is like a single day's wage, right? So it's not insignificant, like three months wages is so quite a bit, right? But the idea is that, you know, with time and with effort, like that could be paid back. Um, but the whole point is that like quite apart from matters of like justice and stuff, right? Am I constantly mindful that who am I? I am all disciple, a fellow sinner, but also I'm the one that the father loves in spite of myself. And he has repaid through his suffering and death on the cross, a debt that I cannot even in principle pay back. And then based on that, I move forward. Um, another example that comes to mind is from this weekend's gospel. So like the woman caught in adultery, right? It's kind of interesting. I didn't notice it until this year, but like, it's interesting that it's, it, the, the stage is set in terms of like, this is the woman who is caught in the very act of adultery, right? So a lot of times that you hear like, oh, I can't like judge people because I don't know their intention or maybe they're extending in circumstances. Now she was she was caught in the act of adultery, right? And the catechism talks about this too, right? There are certain things that are intrinsically evil, like regardless of like um, intention or circumstance, by virtue of the object chosen, like yeah, like it's not good, right? So uh, blasphemy, like you know, murder, uh, adultery, right? So here's here's the situation. But the reason why that example is so fitting for this point is because the Lord is saying even in this moment you're called to respond to this situation and to this person with great love 
and kindness and mercy and a really attentive, personal, intimate pastoral approach. Because like, what's the end game is, again, it's not simply justice. It's not simply eye eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're, You're trying to make sure she gets into the right spiritual space of gratitude. Because at the end of the day, even when he says like, has anyone condemned you? Like, no, like, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. It seems like, well, don't you care about the fact she committed adultery? Well, she, he cares about her, right? So even at the end, like, even she doesn't know that, okay, my sins are, are wiped away by, by the future anticipated marriage of Christ in the cross. Even she doesn't know that. What she knows acutely is that, like, I could have been killed by those guys who wanted to stone me. But Christ came out of nowhere and spared me. And so out of gratitude for him, I'm going to try not to commit adultery, right? And it could have been a different way. It could have been like, you know, oh man, like, you know, I, he chewed me out and he maybe threatened to stone me too. And so I still avoid adultery, but it's out of a stance of fear, but that's not, that's not the gospel. Right. And so when we talk about like, you know, taking seriously your spiritual journey, it's not just like external behavior, which is important. It's like, it's like the, the path that leads to that. So when I live my life, am I, am I trying to hit my spiritual targets because I'm worried that God's going to get mad? Or do I realize God loves me in spite of myself and everything I do is from a stance of gratitude? Okay. Now, final thing with regards to like, um, you know, this identity as child of God and what do we do kind of flowing from that? So I think with this, um, to realize and really own the fact that like you have intrinsic dignity and the other person, whoever you're dealing with, individuals, couples, they have intrinsic dignity as well. So this is one of those things where like, you know, a lot of times you find in, in like um, pastoral practice, you focus on techniques, right? So like, oh man, I'm called to like love this person and to listen and be attentive and whatever. And so what can I do to, to show that I'm loving? What can I do to show that I'm paying attention? Well, again, maybe you want to go back to the whole primacy of being as opposed to doing, right? Like forget about like external techniques to give the suggestion that you care. Just care and be interested in people and value them for who they are. And like, like the externals will, will flow from that. Right. Um, I think it was Augustine who said like, you know, basically love with your whole heart and then basically do whatever you want. Right. So the idea is that, okay, if I really look at, um, you know, my, like other couples or like my friend or whoever, and I, I really like am interested in them as people, and I value and cherish them as people, like, like all sorts of ideas will come to mind. Like, well, maybe I, I send them a little text to let them know, like, hey, I'm thinking about you, or I, I celebrate their successes, right? Or when I spend time with them, rather than wait for, like, you know, the, the next clever thing I'm going to say, I'm going to ask more questions to kind of give them the chance to, to bring the inside out. Because, not because I want to show that I care, but because I, I really do care, you know? One final thing, um, you know, we, we talked a lot about these different things, about identity and what, what flows from that, but, like, when we talk about all these things, what we're really doing, even though it sounds kind of strange, is we're actually um, evangelizing in a way which goes beyond the surface, right? Because when we think about evangelization, I think a lot of times we're thinking about um, sharing doctrinal practices or truths or getting people to go to church or, or whatever, right? But you got to identify, like, what, what is the primordial uh, wounds when it comes to the human person? Again, Brett Powell talks about this, right? It's like, Original sin entered into the world because somewhere along the way, um, Adam and Eve just stopped trusting in God, right? And as a result of that, what do we see? The proliferation of sin, which continues to this day, but also, funny enough, a discomfort with vulnerability and weakness, 
right? And so you think about like in the aftermath of original sin, like, you know, Adam, where are you, right? I was like, well, I, I realized I was naked. I was ashamed. And so I hid, right? And so the idea is that, okay, when I feel like weak and vulnerable and broken, or when I recognize that I am weak and vulnerable and broken, like, what do I do, right? Do I, do I go the way of shame and or do I go the way of hiding? Or do I realize that I have people in my life, other couples, friends, that can pr provide me with a safe space? Like I see how they live their lives. They, they live their lives out of an authentic sense of like, you know, Christian marriage and discipleship and they believe in the dignity of the human person, child of God. And, and you know, that relationship is, is a place of repose and safety for me. And when you give people those opportunities to explore and work through their brokenness in a place of safety, like it's amazing what can, can flow from that. And that's ultimately what we're getting, right? At getting at, because you can, again, have situations where, you know, here's a party, here's a social gathering, here's an opportunity for coffee or dinner, but this is ultimately what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to repair deep um, primordial wounds sending back to Adam and Eve original sin. And all these things we're talking about today kind of touches on, on how we can do that from a practical perspective. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Wow. Never really thought of that whole process of how you uh, spoke about that and got to the, the main point near the end. Thanks, Father Eric. What very well thought out. So it's interesting, Father. Um, what if you have like a, a spouse that may not be Catholic, that that you may not be in the same, I guess, on the same, same point in your spiritual journey. Does that somehow those variables change how you would relate to other couples? Um, not really, not really. I mean, it's uh, like St. Paul talks about this where like basically the the holiness of the Catholic space was supposed to elevate the other one, you know? So it's, it almost kind of ups the ante in a certain sense. Um, but in terms of, of like the actual approach, like maybe the way that it gets to that final destination is, is not at least initially talking about things from an explicitly theological perspective. But I, I think in those moments, you got to trust like Christian anthropology, right? Like everyone's heart is restless until they rest in the Lord, right? And, and the other thing too, like um, because because like this idea of safe space for me to work through my own vulnerability is, is such a novel concept, never mind in practice for people. Like when people um, are in the presence of that, it's just, it's almost intoxicating, you know? Like you, you find that for example, with um, funerals, you know? So like not everyone recognizes the moment. So sometimes you, you'll see like um, funeral um, eulogies or words of remembrance where people are uncomfortable with the intimacy of the moment. So they just fill the thing with like jokey things, right? But if people recognize the moment, they, they're like, okay, like, yeah, like here's my loved one. And like, they're in that casket, right? So if there's ever a time for honesty and vulnerability, now, now it is, right? And if people recognize the moment and it rises to the occasion, it's so interesting. They can be technically horrific speakers, but it doesn't matter. People are just like, they're like agog, you know? <laughs> it's like, they'll keep on going, right? They, and it, yeah, it, like it doesn't matter, right? Because it, it's real, you know? Um, and it's just one of those things that it should happen more often, but maybe just doesn't occur to us to do that. So um, I think it's an important starting point, like just to kind of trust that, like, like the human heart is, is made for that and it, and it longs for it. So when you kind of create that window of opportunity, um, people just eat it up. 
I think it's a, we kind of have to re-evolve back to this too, because of the last couple of years. I don't know if just the circumstances of COVID times have kind of separated people as couples, as families. So reconnecting with others and being vulnerable with them again is also seems a bit foreign, right? After a couple of years of being apart. I mean, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, it's funny. I have a, I have a Lenten mission coming up in my own parish like in a couple of weeks and I have no idea what I'm going to talk about, but it's probably something like this, you know, because like in, in, his, in the history of the church, um, great reform and innovation have always emerged in response to a crisis in the church, right? And so, you know, with um, with COVID and with like the dispensation and whatever, like there's been this, okay, so now there's there's not the obligation to go to mass, you know, for legitimate reasons, the ongoing pandemic and stuff. But then, okay, so if people wanted to come, they could, but they didn't have to, right? And so then in that circumstance, what did people do? A lot of people didn't come, right? So it's a real indictment, like in terms of like, okay, when you look at like the sacramental life of the church or like programs or institutions and stuff, for a reason, a lot of people just haven't seen value in those things. And so, you know, when the obligation element has been removed, then okay, like, you know, I mean, I just don't go. And maybe like they, they feel relieved about that. And we could like, you know, stamp our feet about that and say like, oh, like, you know, they should do this, they should do that. Or we could go the way of like the Catholic church where like, okay, here's another moment of crisis where we're not called to go to way of despondency, but to kind of bring to the table great honesty and creativity. Like what is the nature of the problem? And what can we bring to bear in terms of our creativity, ingenuity, um, innovation, just to come up with something that might work, right? And maybe it doesn't work initially, but you just keep on trying, right? As opposed to doing the, the same old kind of tired things, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things, it, it doesn't fall just on like priests or like, you know, the, the people in professional religious uh, um, um, professions, but like it, it falls to everyone, right? So this, this is the question that, that everyone should be pondering on really deeply kind of going forward. Um, especially mindful of the fact that, you know, it's not just the gathered, it's, it's scattered as Cardinal Collins talks about all the time. So people who aren't in the habit of going to church for whatever reason, okay, you know, you people, you're like, you know, like sleeper, sleeper agents in a certain sense. You're called to go out there to the scattered and meet them where they're at in, in a way that, that you know, I, I for example, I don't have access to those, those, those venues, right? And so when you, when, you, when you meet people in their homes and in restaurants and over coffee or whatever, just in walks of life, like what do you bring to bear mindful of the fact that this is the crisis that we're, we're wrestling with? 